podcast i'm brandon and i'm ross in today's episode we're going to be talking to three labor and environmental activists they're all part of an organization called sierra which we will get to shortly we decided to do this episode because we realized that we're coming to the end of this season and we've not addressed the most important issue of the day climate change and what better day to do it than on earth day for those of you that don't know earth day is an annual event dedicated to discussing and taking action on environmental protection our panellists have been sitting patiently waiting as we introduce ourselves. So without further ado, we're going to let them introduce themselves too. Thank you so much for joining us. Marie, would you like to start us off? Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me on. So I'm in a few things of all the same theme. I'm the secretary in the Environment Network of the Young Fabians um, in the Fabian Society. I am a member of the Sarah campaign and looking to learn more about it in this episode to be honest and see how I can get involved further and I'm in a campaign called Labour for a Green New Deal which is where I'm looking at policy at the most at the moment. Hello uh, my name's George and um, I've recently started working for Sierra as their assistant um, national organiser. We'll also say it's full title shall we? Socialist Environment and Resources Association. There we go. I also am chair of the Yorkshire and Humberside Young Fabians Network, and I run the, um, we'll, we'll, we'll call it known, shall we, uh, podcast Red Rose Reporting. My links to environmentalism is obviously doing uh, this work for Sarah for the last month. Uh, beforehand, I was quite involved in Hugh Goldborn's campaign to become West Yorkshire Mayor, which was kind of the green ticket for the West Yorkshire Mayor race. Um, so we've done a lot of work on how to present those kind of policies such as how you um, sell really radical green ideas in a place like West Yorkshire which is the, you know, the red wall. Hi everyone um, so I'm Vari and I back in I think 2018 um, co-founded the Young Fabians Environment Network and became its first chair and then yeah through that kind of got involved in CIRA and I'm currently CIRA's youth rep. I guess, relatedly for my day job, I work for a youth climate charity here in Scotland. So we're going to move on to the first question. This one's for George and Vary, um, as representatives of Sarah. What is Sarah? What does it do? Okay, so Sarah is Labour's environment campaign. Um, we're the, the only environment campaign that's officially affiliated to the Labour Party. And Sarah's role is really to influence Labour Party policy and push us to be more environmental and be more ambitious in our green policies, but also make sure that we're doing it in a socially just way so that we're not um, making, you know, the poorest pay for the mess made by, I guess, the rich and the generations before us. Um, I suppose I would just come in to add that um, CIRA, when it comes to its work, is not as upfront as some organisations when it comes to marshalling for change. However, we've been in the background since 1973. We've been behind a lot of the really good green policy that you've seen out of Labour for the last two decades. Essentially, it's kind of like, you know, if there has been a green measure, we've been there, to put it in a very concise way. So how did you actually get involved in in CIRA? Is it just kind of a a sign-up job or... Have you been involved in environmental campaigns before that have kind of turned into the organisation? 
Yeah, sure. So I, well, so I was a, I guess this kind of links back to how I got involved in the Labour Party. So I was actually a young Fabian before I was a Labour Party member. Um, I was always kind of interested in politics, but wasn't particularly party political. And then I moved to London, went to some young Fabian events, got involved and realised that they didn't have an environment network. And that was a point where I was feeling really disheartened in terms of, yeah, feeling frustrated about the gap between what I knew about the climate crisis and how much it was being talked about in politics. So yeah, so I guess I then became a Labour member. I learned that there was such a thing as Sarah and there were actually greenies within the Labour Party. Um, so yeah, so I kind of, I guess, um, because of that, joined Sarah and then working with Sarah a little bit on a project that I did with the Young Fabians Environment Network called Ways to Save the World. And yeah, so kind of got involved them through that and then was persuaded to be youth rep. My journey into CIRA um, is a bit different. Um, basically, like most people graduating in 2020, I discovered that there was a massive gap in the job market and found, oh God, there's nothing going. So through a lot of different applications, I ended up working on the campaign for Hugh Goldborn, who is in charge of the CIRA group for West Yorkshire. Now, at the time, before I started working with him, I had no idea what CIRA was. Like I had briefly gone to um, a CIRA stall at a Labour conference in 2019. And I think probably scared the person running it with how much I talked to them and like how many pens I made off with. Through working with Hugh, I ended up getting really kind of wired into what measures could be done locally and kind of at a county-wide level to make green policy happen. For instance, carbon capture schemes. And I just thought it's really awesome. And I was really annoyed that I didn't know about it beforehand. So. I then went on this massive rampage of educating myself on green issues. And then um, I was super lucky because uh, just as that job ended and I found myself bounced back into the world of retail, there was a job going at Sarah to be a organizer. And I applied for it, assuming it would just go nowhere. And well, here we are. Um, so through luck and kind of a weird passion here, that's how I got to being inside Sarah. So what sort of victories have Sarah had in the past? Has there been any examples you can think of where we've maybe persuaded the party to put something I don't know in the manifesto maybe in 2019 or 2017. One of the big campaigns that Sarah's had has been around air pollution so um, clean air that's been yeah a big kind of campaign focus for a number of years. I would talk about this but I wasn't actually involved in it so I feel like I don't want to take credit for things that I haven't um, yeah been involved in campaigning for. Yeah I think though that a lot of the campaigning that Sarah tends to do is more more subtle I guess is kind of what George was um, hinting to and a lot of it is yeah kind of more soft stuff around highlighting what different local labour-led authorities are doing looking at um, and that's usually done by Newground through our blog getting involved in the policy making process so for example recently I was in a meeting on behalf of Sarah with Luke Pollard which is all about rural policy and you know being the voice in those maybe more private meetings which is really pushing for climate change and tackling climate change to be at the heart of any labour policies a bit more 
subtle than just like one campaign winning the manifesto however kind of important that is um, and it's much more about just being almost the kind of annoying constant voice in the Labour Party going remember about the climate <laughs> the earth is burning <laughs> let's stop it yeah it's kind of more I think Sarah's role in a lot of this. Well Sarah was one of the first groups within the Labour Party to recognise that zero carbon and like kind of uh, you know erasing our carbon footprint by presumably 2050 was a big thing like in the 90s they were the first people in the Labour Party started shouting about how we need to go like carbon neutral and at the time they were ridiculed they were told like that's unfeasible you guys are insane and now about you know 25 years down the road oh my god we're suddenly the mainstream um we've, we've always been really in the background as um Avari says but where we've been in the background most effectively was when labor was in government because we were constantly producing uh throughout most of the 2000s these inside government documents just basically saying here's some systemic problems we have some notions of how the solutions could work please crack on with it and it's why when you get to gordon brown's premiership and kind of like the latter years as dark as they were for the labor government in 2000 and 7 to 2010, you see this kind of green streak emerge. And that's because finally, um, people who are now on the Sierra executive were being heard and they were really starting to make their impact felt. Marie, have you got anything you want to say on the Sierra topic just before we move on to our next segment on the Green New Deal? Yeah, so the mayor elections are coming up and the Labour candidate for the West Midlands mayor is Liam Byrne. And he's produced, he's got a really strong manifesto with a really strong section on um, like green industrial revolution, like based from the West Midlands. I really admire what he's doing. He like plans to create green jobs and re- lots of retrofitting houses and um, like plant new forests called Commonwealth Jubilee Forests. But I saw that he worked with the with Sierra, but you probably know more about, about it than I do. I just saw it very briefly. <laughs> I think that's been really interesting with these local elections, how uh, the candidates, both for the mayoral races and also in in local councils, have been talking about what they're going to do to try and help uh, protect our environment. And that's something that I think has even changed since the last uh, local elections. One of the things that I've actually seen on a lot of leaflets is talk of a Green New Deal. Now, um, Murray, you know a lot more about this than I do. So I'm going to let you explain a little bit about what the Green New Deal is. Uh, what would you say that it was to somebody who'd never heard of it before? You know, an alien's come from outer space. He says, wow, this this planet's really <laughs> heating up and it looks a bit of a mess. Well, what can we do about it? What's the Green New Deal? Currently, um, I define the Green New Deal as kind of like a global project, a global project to reduce carbon dioxide emissions to reach net zero emissions by 2050. In doing this, this limits the temperature change of the earth to 1.5 degrees by the year 2100. And in doing this, it expands job opportunities and raises the mass living standards for people and poor people throughout the whole world. Um, so that's like a simple definition. And it mainly like involves, a, it's, it's mainly like a clean energy transformation from like a complete shift from fossil fuels to renewable energy sources, primarily solar and wind power and improving energy efficiency standards, as well as like stopping deforestation and supporting deforestation. And in in doing so, creating loads of jobs and bringing justice to inequalities globally, locally, through this shift. One of the things that's come up in the Scottish Parliament election um, is is how we take workers with us on on this journey. Um, For instance, the Scottish Green Party are, are saying that they want to to end the North Sea oil industry, which does make a large part of the Scottish economy. 
within the decade. How, how do we take workers on, with us on this journey? How do we do it in a way that doesn't put people out of jobs, but creates a just transition? Like everyone who's in jobs now in like oil companies, they there'll be jobs created in manufacturing and technology and also in like financing. So I think we need to like upskill people or be training people for these jobs. So like it'll be manufacturing jobs, build, building turbines or transporting them. I think there's going to be a lot of data science jobs. One thing that I've noticed about kind of talk of a Green New Deal is how it's so different from transition from for example, coal to other forms of energy in the uh, 70s and 80s, because when Thatcher closed down the coal mines, there was nothing there to replace the work that had previously existed. Whereas what I've seen in the Green New Deal is that a big part of it is actually the retraining package and how we'd get workers to move from old industries that are based on uh, fossil fuels like oil, for example, as you've said, and how that would move to a different kind of green industry. George, Vari, do you have anything else that you'd like to add to the Green New Deal? Yes. So personally, I find the stuff all around workers greening the economy really interesting. And I think one of the main points is it's not going to be easy. And I think that if as the Labour Party, we go around saying, oh, yeah, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. And then we don't actually deliver that will have awful implications for those communities and I don't think we'll ever be forgiven. So I think the main thing is that, you know, for people in like Aberdeen that are so reliant on the gas industry at the moment, it isn't going to be easy. And we yeah, kind of need to be careful about how much we promise, but it is possible. So in terms of fossil fuel based rather than renewable based energy systems, renewable based energy systems are a lot more labour intense. So I'm forgetting the complete figures, but you're talking maybe 10 versus one jobs for the equivalent amount of energy produced. So actually, the longer that we're sticking in this fossil fuel system that we have, the longer we're depriving people of really good green jobs um, in our economy. So, yeah, that's one thing about jobs. The other thing is that, you know, we shouldn't just think of green jobs as being solar panels, you know, care workers are also green jobs. Nurses are green jobs. There's so many, um, you know, bus drivers and sustainable transport. It's not just about the kind of building solar panels. It's also about the economy wide around how can we actually have an economy with all sorts of sectors, with loads of great jobs um, that are not dependent on consuming our Earth's resources to unsustainable levels. Yeah, another one, retrofitting houses is like, yeah, well, is really labour intense as an activity to do. So, yeah, I suppose that's like the general point in terms of the plan for the Green New Deal um, and having that level of investment in green stuff will generate a lot of jobs. But we need to make sure that we don't overpromise and that we really support the communities that are going to be hurt by having to shut down the industries that are harming all of us. All I really would say is how we actually bring people with us from uh, communities that have been better within fossil fuels is we need to start off by making sure that the unions are working in tandem with us as the other two panelists have put um, quite well basically these jobs are you know there's so much more than just fitting solar panels there's there's so much scope to them there's so much range in the economy one thing that no one ever talks about is it's not the fact that these jobs can just be there it's that they need to be there because the things that these jobs provide like such as retrofitting houses there is a 
total lack in the market for these places. I, I can't remember the figures to hand, but there was like, when you compare the demand for retrofitting and demand uh, for EV cars, and then you compare that with the infrastructure that's already there, it's woefully inadequate. And this is because of the fact we've got a government which is very good at greenwashing. We've got a government which is great at saying, oh, here's an investment bank for the green, you know, uh, economy coming out there. But then you look at how this compares to what other countries are doing and what the demands are, and it's terrible. So what we need to do is we need to be unambiguous in our language. We need to make sure that the unions are working in tandem and making sure these communities know that these jobs they're going to be going into are not just, you know, they're not just safe. They're also future proof because no one wants to repeat of what happened in the 80s because I'm from Wakefield and I've seen what happens when you rip a community completely from the industry that was there to support it and, and do nothing for it. Yeah. And one of the things that I'm really interested about is the transition away from petrol and diesel cars to electric vehicles. For an electric vehicle, you're talking nearly three times as much as you would pay for a petrol or diesel car. How do we ease that transition as well? Because it's not just about jobs, it's about how we move about as a wider society. Yeah, so I I mean, with electric vehicles, again, I find it really exciting. Every time I see an electric car, I just, yeah, it's like, oh, so cool. It's the future. It's here. So, yeah, so I love an electric vehicle. I think the thing with electric vehicles is that they're not going to solve all our transport emission problems. And yeah, we have to invest in our rail network, we have to invest in our public transport, in our buses, in our cycling lanes, and, you know, making sure that we're encouraging and making it safe for people to walk where it's possible as well. In terms of, I guess, the cost, we're at this really tipping point, I think, with electric vehicles, where they're just getting to the point where they're competitive in the UK. And yeah, there's more that we can do to make them to make it you know the same if not cheaper to buy an electric vehicle but I also got I'm almost going to sound a bit right wing here the market may help us <laughs> but um in what I mean is that because there is now such a big demand for this and for electric vehicles there is a kind of point where it will become just cheaper generally I mean we've seen it with solar panels if you're looking at solar panels 10, 20 years ago, they were nowhere near comparable to fossil fuel. Now they're, I think, much, much cheaper than coal. So, yeah, it's also sometimes just a matter of time. Okay, I'm going to move us on a little bit. So we've kind of looked at how national policy, how government policy can make a difference in, in terms of making us live in a more sustainable environment. But do you think that individuals can also make a difference towards helping the environment? And and by the way, for listeners at home, I'm not being nasty. I'm not trying to catch anyone out. Uh, I did actually send this out in the brief questions beforehand. As individuals, have you done anything personally that has led you to lead a, a greener lifestyle? Just one thing, if you can. Individuals can make a difference because companies are like providing what we're using. So if we like all just stopped buying petrol tomorrow like stop filling our cars up like they're going to produce less of it and we show less demand for it renewable energy companies like like octopus energy will grow bigger while other existing oil companies like shell will start investing more in their their renewable energy sources so they're offering us things and we can say no to that offer we don't have to just carry on with the way like what everyone in society does just because that's the way it is and then yeah and then so one thing I've done I'm going with octopus energy to like um have renewable energy from mostly solar power and wind power and it's really affordable and was really straightforward so um how can individuals make an impact on the local level well 
biggest polluter on the planet, meat industry. Um, I'm not going to try and act like a mistake. I still eat meat. But however, I have started to take steps towards stopping that. Three out of the seven days of the week, I eat vegetarian. And one of the seven days a week, I'm eating vegan. And that is progressing slowly towards actually full time. Equally, you can do more stuff um, to make sure that the stuff you consume, not just meat, but like everything else, is actually not kind of an accidental cause of emissions. Because obviously, when you buy stuff from the supermarket, it has been brought by a lorry. It has been bought by a tanker. So stuff like grow your own herbs, grow your own vegetables, little steps like that. I, mean, I don't think you're going to grow like a whole summer's worth of tomatoes for yourself. That's just not feasible. But you can do little steps so that your own personal you know, footprint is uh, smaller. And, you know, at the end of the day, even if none of this stuff works and the earth is burning by the time we're all 50, at least you can be really smug about it that you did your bit. And I think that really is the most British thing you can do in all this situation. Beautiful. Thank you, George. <laughs> Vary. I don't know if I can follow that smugness that's the answer um yeah so I think in terms of individuals with anything to do with climate change and the environment I think that there's this tendency for everyone to move into white savior superman mode which is that I must tackle this all on my own um, and I must save the world one day at a time um, and I think that really when we're talking about anything to do with the environment and climate change, it is overwhelming. It's really overwhelming. And thinking instead, instead about I, thinking about we, and that we can be the big we in terms of the country and politics and voting, but it can also be smaller stuff. So thinking about, I don't know, your local football club, your office, when we had those, um, you know, thinking about the influence that you have and the communities that you're in. And I am a big believer that the biggest thing you can do is just talk to other people about it and do things with other people. So, for example, I don't know, going on Zoom and cooking a veggie dinner with a friend or doing clothing swaps and things like that. And I think that makes you feel a, that you're kind of doing your bit and making a difference, which gives you the smug factor, but B, is also engaging with other people and making sure that you don't feel isolated and you don't end up feeling lonely in this, because I promise you there will be hundreds of thousands, millions of people that feel exactly the same. There's little things that we can all do, um, but I think we all do recognise that this has to be a national effort or, or a global effort. Let's look into the future and see Labour, our Labour Prime Minister is walking into Downing Street 2024 what would be their top climate priority or their top environmental policy what do you want that to be so one of the one of my top priorities is retrofitting houses how have we not done this yet it is the simplest win-win win-win win-win-win policy in that it reduces emissions we've got some of the worst housing stock in the uk it makes people less cold which generally good thing means you get less ill, die less. Great. Um, and yeah, it's huge in terms of jobs, like retrofitting housing is one of the big climate policies that could generate a huge amount of um, jobs in the building industry. So yeah, that's my, my biggie. So when Labour, the Labour Party get into Downing Street, completing this Green New Deal and really taking initiative with it, working with um, other countries as well is like the way forward I think but then within that personally I, I like the um, I think decarbonization is, the, is obviously like the main goal so 
like if I could choose Labour's top priority, I quite like the idea of um, increasing the carbon tax to just re- reduce the amount of fossil fuels being dug up. George? I would demand whoever came in in 2024 to ring fence about three billion pounds in green development funds to local mayoral authorities across the whole country. Because at the minute, what we're seeing with like green policy and the way it's going in the Labour Party is it's not actually being led by Ed Miliband and the shadow cabinet. It's being led by Andy Burnham, Tracy Braben, uh, Dan Norris, uh, local mayoral candidates have all released their manifestos i'm sure everyone listening to this has read them all you know good labor people they probably read them all you'll have seen that there is some amazing stuff in there that tackles all the topics we've been talking about and more and what's a shame is that these areas they represent these people are dependent on you know us being able to beat the tories in an election famously not labor strong suit so i think that this should be our chance to basically make sure that regardless of whether we've got a good labor man or some Torian. We should have, you know, these communities have their um, local green initiatives properly funded and protected. Um, because even those coming in, like if Jesse Joe Jacobs gets elected, she's dependent on having the Tories in West one billion pounds development fund for the Tees Valley to turn it into a nation leading um net zero um green industrial revolutions hub. Why should why should these areas be contingent on who's in Westminster? They should just get it. So yeah, that's what I do. Thank you so much for all of your ideas that you've thrown out this episode. Is there anything else that you'd like to add before we, we round off this episode? Uh, this is your chance to give yourself a bit of promotion, give the organisations that you work with a bit of promo um, or leave any lasting thoughts. So next Monday, the 26th of April at 6.30pm, I've put together an event in the Young Fabians Environment Network with the Devolution Local Government Network and Economy and Finance Network. Looking at this, looking at green policies in local government in like major cities in the UK. So we've got a really good lineup. Um, there's Wazim Zafar from Birmingham um, Environment and Transport. He's on the committee. Angelica Stogia from Manchester's um, Climate Change Committee. Hugh Thomas, and leader of the Cardiff Council. And Claudia Beamish, who's in the Environment and Climate Change and Landform Committee in Scotland. So... Anyone who's listening, please check out the details. We'd love that you could all come because it'll be really, really good. Barry, anything you want to plug? I'd just say go to that event. It sounds great. <laughs> um, yeah, so in terms of my plugs, yeah, I'm going to plug the Young Fabians Environment Network. Yeah, it's great. If you're listening and you're interested in environmental stuff, go join the Young Fabians and get signed up to the Environment Network because um, whoever thought of that idea was a genius, is what I'm going to say. Yeah, and then in terms of Sarah, just join up, you know, come join us, be part of Labour's original environment campaign. And yeah, the easiest way to do that is through the website. Um, And if you're a young person and you're interested in doing more with Sarah, then just reach out to me, usually Twitter, I think. It's maybe the one that I check the most, possibly not. Um, but yeah, just reach out to maybe through George. Email George. George is more responsive than I am. Um, so yeah, so get in touch with Sarah and I'd love to hear from you. And there's a bit of friendly competition on the podcast, isn't there? George, I suppose as you've been kind enough to come on, we'll let you talk a little bit, just a little bit about your own podcast. Well, I'm sure this will all get expunged in the edits. So... I run my own rival podcast, Red Rose Reporting. Since everyone else has plugged all the wonderful environmental campaign stuff, 
currently we've got three main series on our podcast we have got waiting for the salvation which is a bi-weekly roundup of all the polling trends throughout the united kingdom uh, we tend to get some guests on that from the fabians open labor you know we sometimes have different people on it's great second series is red rose of roots where we talk about the history of red wall seats we've done an episode on wakefield we have one on hemsworth coming out very soon and we've also got one scheduled for barnsley and thirdly we have a special coming up if you, like everyone else, have spent the last month obsessed with Hartlepool and everything going off there, this is going to be your chance. We are going to absolutely analyse the hell out of it. Look at all the polling trends, look at all the parties, get your nips from your neps sorted out. And we've even got some people from Hartlepool there, which makes a change from BBC's coverage. So if any of that stuff sounds good and you just want to geek out about elections, head over to my podcast. Oh, and also join Sarah, join the Fabians. But yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast to talk about what is the most important issue of the day. And thanks for telling us a little bit more about CIRA and what you think the future of environmental policy is. And thank you to you, our listener, for tuning in today. If you want to hear more from the Life Winters podcast, you can find our social media in this episode's description. As well as this, you can find the link to CIRA, Labour's environmental campaign, in the description below, as well as all of the different uh, organisations that were mentioned throughout today's episodes, including George's podcast. So all that's left to say is keep whinging and we'll see you next Wednesday.